Hi again, everybody. I'm Sean Kelly, and welcome into the Black and Blue Report podcast series presented by SeatGeek. Happy Wednesday to you, and greetings from Studio B at the Osher Sports Performance Center. Today's podcast is full. We have a lot to cover as we've got big-time news down the stretch of the NBA season, and of course, a lot of NFL off-season news that has the New Orleans Saints squarely in the middle of not only local, but national off-season implications. Yesterday, the big news of the owners' meetings in Arizona was the change to replay regarding offensive and defensive pass interference and the ability to challenge those via video replay. Head coach Sean Payton and owner Gail Benson spearheaded the effort and pushed through what seemed to be somewhat unrealistic, at least at the start of the owners' meetings, but it's done now and will reside in the NFL for at least one season, and I would imagine further along than that. John DeShazer joins us here in just a moment to recap the big news of yesterday as he is still working at the owners' meetings in Scottsdale. The New Orleans Saints also introduced a new offensive player this week. Offensive weapon, I should say. Pro Bowl tight end Jared Cook is now a member of the New Orleans Saints offense. And our own Daniel Sallerson catches up with Cook in his first visit with us here at Studio B. Of course, he's coming off of a career season with the Raiders. And now he joins the black and gold and becomes another weapon, as I mentioned, for quarterback Drew Brees. And then there's the NBA stretch. Only two weeks remain in the regular season. We've got a lot of news to cover from around the league, both in the East and the West. And what's the latest with the Pelicans from a national perspective? We get all that from ESPN NBA analyst John Barry. I was able to sit down with him this week as we worked together in Milwaukee. So three great guests coming up. Daniel Sallerson visiting with our own John DeShazer as NewOrleansSaints.com was right there front and center for coverage of the owners' meetings. Daniel also visits with Jared Cook, and I'll wrap things up with my visit alongside John Barry. Hope you enjoy it. This is a good one, and we'll be right back. This is the Black and Blue Report presented by SeatGeek. Here's Sean Kelly. All right, so let's get started, and we'll start with the league-wide news of replay now being entered into the conversation regarding offensive and defensive pass interference. Obviously, this one hits home for all of us, but this will benefit the league, we think, in a lot of ways. Daniel Sallerson visited with John DeShazer just a short time ago from Scottsdale. All right, J.D., let's get right to it. Obviously, a big breakthrough in the NFL yesterday regarding the NFL replay review, and now pass interference calls, whether it's on the offensive end or defensive end, will now be subject to review and, of course, Sean Payne and Gail Benson had a lot to do with it. But just talk about, J.D., how this affects the game and this monumental rule change yesterday. Well, hopefully the, the bottom line is what happened to the Saints in the NFC Championship game doesn't happen again. Uh, and that's the main thing. You just want to get uh, – I think Sean Payton said this and maybe Mrs. Benson said it, but what you want to do is you want to try to get the game as right as you can. Uh, you want to try to eliminate – those kinds of mistakes, and even Commissioner Goodell said, "Look, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but you, you know, that shouldn't stop you from trying to be perfect, and it certainly shouldn't uh, stop you from giving the appearance that you're trying to be perfect." So, I think you know, all the way around, what it does is it gives coaches one more play that's you know, that's reviewable. I mean, it doesn't add to their challenges. You know, you still only have the two challenges, and if you correct, get a, you get an extra one. 
so you only still have the two challenges, but also, um, you know, it, so it doesn't change from that standpoint. And it puts the, the final two minutes of each half, that pass interference, you know, offensive or defensive, into the hands of the replay officials. So it's not a real it, – it's a significant change from the standpoint of you adding in an impact play that's reviewable, but it's not so impactful that, you know, the coaches have the challenge and they have the, uh, the opportunity to do it within the last two minutes and a half. So I think it probably was the best-case scenario. J.D., the ruling was 31-1 to as far as owners voting on this rule, but how long did it seem like for most of the owners to kind of agree with Sean Payton in this ruling as far as was it a tough challenge to get everyone to agree to this, or did it seem like after a, a couple hours of conversation that this was going to be something that was going to happen? Well, I think a lot of lobbying and, you know, arm twisting and, you know, cajoling went along with it. Um, uh, um, not only did Sean Payton and Mrs. Benson have to do some of it, I think Commissioner Goodell said he had to kind of address the owners and, and you know, kind of, you know, sway some perspectives because you got some old school thinking in there. I mean, you got some people who probably, you know, didn't like replay in the beginning, and they certainly don't certainly don't like modifications and expansion of it, and yet. I think uh, it was correctly noted that this is where the game is going. I mean, if you have the technology and you have the ability to prevent games from ending in the way that the Saints uh, ended in the NFC Championship game, then you've got to put that technology to use. You've got to put that knowledge to use, and you got to hope to make the game better from that standpoint. Um, is it going to be a delay problem? Because that was the, you know, that Sean Payton said, the boogeyman <laughs> that was in the room. No, because, again, you're not adding – challenges you're not you're just adding another play that can be reviewed so from a coaching perspective you don't get to you know add on anything from from that you just choose okay instead of challenging this play i get a chance to challenge a pass interference instead of uh, of something else so you know i think all the way around again i I think it was a good change uh, that did have to be that had to be some swaying because you know a lot of times you get in these situations and you say you know well if if it didn't happen to me then it doesn't bother me. But from a coaching standpoint, I think it was pretty much unanimous and universal. The coaches were in favor of this, so the owners had to be swayed. And I think that's where Mrs. Benson came in and where Dennis Lauscher came in, the team president, and where Roger Goodell came in. J.D., not only do coaches still have to challenge in order to get that reviewed, but also under the two minutes in the second and fourth quarter is where it can be reviewed as well. How important was it for them to add that part of it especially with what happened in the NFC Championship game? Well, that was a critical element of, of the rule change, of the, of the modification. That was the critical element because if you don't add that part in, then what basically all you did was, you know, you, you, you kind of made some people feel pretty good, placated a little bit, but you didn't get to the heart of it. And when you're talking about the critical juncture of the game, when you have that kind of egregious mistake to happen, that's where the problem would have been if it had not been a play that you could challenge or or the replay official could correct in the last two minutes because let's say this happens and I mean it's you know it's a long shot but if something like that happens in the Super Bowl and I and I see where basically in hindsight they're saying you know there was a play late in the Super Bowl where Brandon Cooks would interfere with defensively on a pass route and he was in the end zone if the Rams maybe get that ball on the one yard line or something maybe they score and we're talking about a different type of Super Bowl. Maybe the Rams win that game. So if we're talking about not being able to challenge that play and not being able to, to you know, change it because it's that egregious and what happened with the Saints, then we're talking about changing basically football history and changing the, the scope of the game. 
uh, what happened to the Saints shouldn't happen to anybody, man. I mean, we all know if the Saints get that call, they're in the Super Bowl. That changed uh, the, the history of a franchise. So instead of having two Super Bowl appearances and maybe two Lombardi trophies, you've got the one Super Bowl appearance and you've got an NFC check, another NFC championship game appearance. It changes the scope of everything. And, and now you can't you can't go back and, you know, there's no, oops, my bad. You, you also change the fact that this Saints team or that Saints team, rather, will never be together again. Mark Ingram will never be on that team again. You know, now Mark Ingram's not in the not, not in the organization anymore. He loses that chance to go into the Super Bowl as a Saint. So all of those things are, you know, you, you just want to make sure that you don't have something that's that egregious that happens to change the scope of maybe NFL history. And so you don't want something like that to happen in a conference championship game or playoff game or the Super Bowl, heaven forbid, or even the regular season game. You just don't want the game to be changed that way. And now here are some opportunities to where you can make sure that that doesn't happen. J.D., correct me if I'm wrong, but is this just a one-year trial to see how this goes, or is this rule in there for good no matter what happens this next year as far as the replays are concerned? No, it's a one-year trial, but it's one of those things where you feel pretty safe that you know once the one year is over, it's probably going to be implemented, you know, permanently. Because, you know, look, I mean, how many, you know, I don't necessarily know if there are going to be, you know, 17 game-changing calls, you know, in the last two minutes of a half or in the last two minutes of, of the game. But you know what? If there are, that's, that might be even better because it shows you the need for that type of that type of inclusion in, in instant replay. So, you know, it's on a one-year trial. Uh, I would imagine that, you know, it's going to go past the one year because they did the same thing with the kickoff. The kickoff. Um, that that uh, modification came in for last season, and now they've adopted it permanently. And I would imagine this will probably go in the same direction. J.D., you talked about how this changes the landscape of the NFL and the scope of the things, which was, of course, led by Sean Payton and Mrs. Gail Benson. So in the grand scheme of things, how much does this change the NFL and how we look at, one, replaying other types of penalties or just kind of looking at how the replay system can change the way this game is being played in the future? Well, I mean, eventually I would imagine other plays are probably going to be included. And it just, you know, what, what they said were, in, in terms of offensive and pass and defensive pass interference, those were the two most impactful plays uh, in the NFL in terms of, you know, when you're talking about penalty-wise. So those, you know, to me were naturally reviewable. What, what, what are the next, you know, impactful plays maybe it's personal fouls that you start to to you know have instant replay on and whether or not you know a player warrants ejection or, or that kind of thing so there will be addition to it because you know every time you know you got you first have to break the seal you gotta you know get into it and then you add to it and make it better and you tweak it and make it better and you try to refine it as much as possible it's never going to be perfect but you want to get it as close to perfect as you possibly can so you know at least you have a starting point, okay? Offensive and pass and, and defensive pass interference. Those that's a good starting point because those are huge, impactful plays. Because you're talking about a defensive pass interference down the field, that could be a 35, 40 yard penalty. Right. Or if you're talking about an offensive pass interference where a guy pushes off and makes a reception and he takes it 50 yards, well, and then maybe it's not called on the field, but if the if the replay, if you can re, if you can uh, review that, if you can challenge it, or if it happens later with the two minutes and the, the replay official can overturn that, now you're talking about again a big impactful play that you can wipe off the board 
and, and so you can you can change the game from that standpoint. So I think it's it's huge from the standpoint of you're able to get 31 owners. And it's hard to get 31 out of 32 owners to do anything in the NFL. Right. You were able to get 30, 31 of the owners to agree and say, okay, this will be better for our game if we try to get it as right as possible. I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a second for the fact that if a play or a call is not really an egregious act as far as what we saw in the NFC Championship game, is it going to be a little tough as far as, one, when you go to the replay and the ref season, it's more of a ticky-tack, it could go either way. Is that where maybe we can see a problem with this replay system of reviewing the interference calls? No, because it'll it, again it reverts to the the current is basically the current replay system, and when there is a call that happens on the field, if they can't see conclusive evidence to overturn it, then the call on the field stands, and so that'll be the same thing with the pass interference. If there's not a conclusive, you know, look that says okay, this was offensive or defensive pass interference, then the call on the field is going to stand. So if it was a no call, it's going to remain a no call. If there was a call then it's going to remain in, in whatever the call was. So I don't think it changes it fundamentally from that standpoint at all. J.D., before I let you go, I know you have a lot to get going here in Phoenix, Arizona, as the NFL owners' meetings wrap up. But I do want to talk about the new addition of Jared Cook. And obviously, Sean Payne talked for quite some time yesterday. And one of the topics, of course, was Jared Cook. And you'll hear from Jared in the show in just a little bit. But um, what was Sean Payne's reaction to signing Cook, and how well does he fit into the system, especially with tight end being an important part of this offense? Well, number one, Sean Payne, he just dropped that one in there real smooth yesterday, like <laughs> you know, like everybody kind of knew it. Like, yeah, my understanding, he signed, and nobody had any idea that he was signed. He must have been signed yesterday morning. Yeah. But he adds that element to the Saints' offense because we saw down the stretch um, in the passing game where Michael Thomas, the receiver, needed some help and Jared Cook should be able to give him that help uh, as a receiving tight end had a career year last year uh, he's going into his 11th year uh, he's a receiving tight end he's not a guy who's going to be dominating your blocking but you get him on the linebacker on the safety and he can make some things happen and he's another he's another weapon that loosens up the defense and forces the defense to play honestly and you know hopefully make some guys back up and those are the kinds of things that will make the Saints offense uh, more potent. We saw during the stretch where Ted Ginn Jr. wasn't playing last year where defenses basically started to challenge the Saints a little bit more on the line of scrimmage and they weren't getting the, the receiving production out of the tight end position that you hope to have seen you know from the standpoint of Ben Watson and Dan Arnold and Josh Hill you know you know, I think uh, probably Josh Hill more of a blocker, Dan Arnold hopefully coming on as a receiver but a young player who was just learning the position basically but we're talking about Jared Cook, a guy who's done it for 10 years and a guy who knows, you know, route running and hopefully will establish that relationship with Drew Brees. So it excites you, the possibilities that he will give you in the Saints offense because uh, we know when the Saints have had potent tight ends, when Jimmy Graham was extremely productive, when Benjamin Watson had his productive seasons, we know that the Saints offense is different, uh, a different beast when it has that tight end element to throw at people and to really strike some fear into him. And I think Jared Cook, and, and I think Sean Payton said that, you know, Jared Cook was pretty much going to line up on the opposite side of Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas generally lines up opposite the tight end. So now you balance out that offense and give you really two potent weapons 
that you can throw at the defense. And you add Alvin Kamara to that in the passing game, and you know, hopefully some of the younger receivers will come on. And I think the Saints' passing game will get back to a little bit more of what we're accustomed to seeing or what we saw earlier last season before they tailed off some down the, down the stretch. That's John DeShazer of NewOrleansSaints.com. He's done a great job of covering the NFL owners' meetings in Phoenix, Arizona, and now it's time for him to come home. And uh, now we'll get ready for some basketball tomorrow night as the Pelicans take on the Sacramento Kings. J.D., I appreciate it as always. Good stuff. And uh, we'll see you when you get back. Glad to be coming home, and I'll see you guys later. All right, guys. Big news indeed. Well done. Thank you very much. Let's turn our attention to Jared Cook. The new Saints tight end is excited and ready to be a member of the black and gold. He's going to be a big-time weapon for Drew Brees and Sean Payton. Daniel Salerson was with him. On the telephone this morning, one-on-one in his first introduction to us here in Studio B. All right, Jared, first off, congratulations on your deal with the New Orleans Saints. First off, welcome to New Orleans. It's, it's good to have you on board. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very excited to, uh, to be a Saint and to get down there and get to work. So uh, as far as your free agency process went, uh, what, was your, what factored into your decision of choosing the Saints? Location, uh, quarterback, uh, it's close to home. Uh, we play in Atlanta. Uh, my family can come see me play. Uh, Drew, of course, was a huge deciding factor. Uh, just a great quarterback, the way he approaches the game. Uh, you know, he, he focuses on the details. And uh, he focuses on the little details that make him great. And I've been a huge fan of his for a long time. Uh, you know, coaching staff was was a big part of it, um, how they run the organization, the city in itself. Um, the, the Saints is a great organization, always has been. Coach Payton is a great coach. Uh, coach Loomis is a great GM. And I had a really good time when I came down and visited with those guys. Yeah, of course, it's hard for you to kind of know what goes on with an organization when you're with another team and you've been in the league so long. But when you look at when you met with the Saints and kind of their reputation, um, how much do you, you pay attention to those things, not only in the off season, but even in the regular season when you go to these different places and you notice these types of things, like how good of an organization the Saints are? Uh, a lot of times it's the first thing that stands out. Uh, and then, of course, you talk to other players that have played in these cities and you kind of get a gist of how the organization works. And it's very important uh, that an organization uh, gives back and provides for its players and puts its players in the best position uh, so they can be successful. And, and I think that's very, very important. And I think that's uh, a huge key and something that the Saints organization does well. You talk about fit and how this will affect you as far as your career is concerned. Mm-hmm. Tight end is also a big position here with the Saints based on the offense that the Saints like to run with Sean Payne and, of course, Drew Brees always likes having a, a good tight end with him. Um, did you feel like that was a huge part of your decision as well, knowing that the tight end was pretty much the missing piece of the puzzle for this offense in the offseason? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, y'all had y'all have had great tight ends in the past year, uh, and tight ends that have put up some incredible numbers. And with uh, Ben Watson retiring, uh, I feel like it's a huge void that's missing. Um, and that's somewhere where I can step in right away and make a huge impact. Um, and, and I know, like you said before, Drew, Drew likes throwing to the tight ends, and they really like using the tight ends in this offense. So uh, 
that's going to be huge for me is building a rapport with the group as fast as possible and getting implemented as I can. Uh, so that way I can contribute as much about, as possible as I can in the offense. You mentioned the offense, and of course Alvin Kamara running back, but then I have to talk about Michael Thomas as the number one wide receiver here for the Saints. How much pressure does that kind of alleviate from you knowing that you have that playmaker, Michael Thomas, that's going to garner a lot of attention, which means things should open up for you in this offense um, with this team having so many weapons on the offensive end? Um, you know, football is a team sport, and often it takes a lot more uh, It takes a lot more communication to be on the same page than it does on defense. So uh, Mike is a great receiver. He was commanding a lot of double teams and a lot of odds on him last year. And the same thing kind of happened with me in Oakland. Uh, a lot of odds on me. I traveled across the field, and I knew I was the guy that they needed to stop. So, uh, with me and him teamed up with Alvin, it's going to be hard for defenses to be right. Um, and our offensive coordinator and head coach can kind of scheme that to their liking. But um, just like you said, they're going to have to focus on the key pieces that they need to stop instead of just one individual person. So uh, them being able to move that three around, I think, is going to be really big. And I think it's going to open up the offense a lot more and help all three of us out. You mentioned your year in Oakland last year where you put up career highs and catches, receiving yards, touchdowns, and also made your first Pro Bowl. Was it something about the fit there in Oakland that made you so comfortable um, with putting up those numbers in your career, or, or was it just more an, an emphasis for you as far as whether it was something in the offseason you changed? Um, kind of what led to the, this breakout, not breakout year, because you've done it so well throughout your entire career, but kind of what was behind maybe your, your, your numbers and your career highs with Oakland last year? Um, I just think it was part of Coach Gruden coming back into the league. Uh, he knew what type of player he had in me, and uh, he moved me around quite a bit. And he required quite a uh, he required a lot out of me in that offense last year, and I think that helped me out a lot as well to have a coach that knew uh, what I was good at and used for what I was good at, and put me in those positions that are going to make the team successful. Um, so I think he saw that in me. And uh, he just exposed it to the best of his ability. And, you know, just the fact of us losing a lot of receivers and a lot of guys going down and guys getting traded last year, we were kind of short on numbers in the receiver room and in the tight end room. And, uh, you know, when the numbers go down, guys are called upon, so my role just increased even further. And that just allowed me to get more catches, more touches, allowed me to play more offensive snaps. And all that just kind of led into one another, into me having the year that I had. You mentioned John Gruden and what, what he expected from you. What do you expect out of yourself here with the Saints, and what should fans expect from you as you start this new journey with New Orleans? Um, I'm not here to, you know, make predictions or set expectations. I'm here to work hard, and I'm here to get better and to grow in the Saints organization. Um uh, the work is going to get done. We have to do the work with us getting better and us, uh, you know, improving offensively and, and improving from last year as a state, as an organization as a whole and as a team as a whole is important. So uh, yeah, I'm just curious to get my, my feet in the building and, and just kind of get to know how things work before we jump that far ahead. I'm always uh, curious to get an outsider's perspective on – playing in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome because we hear it here as Saints fans 
and just the atmosphere and how electric it is. But I know it's always tough on the opposition when entering the dome and playing. Um, from an opposing point of view, what was it like whenever you were able to play the Saints here in the dome and kind of that atmosphere that you saw and heard? Um, I only played down there once, and that was uh, my rookie year. Okay. And that was preseason, I believe, and it was still loud out there. Um, you know, it's definitely one of the loudest stadiums in the NFL, and that's all I see here from everybody is how electric and loud it is. And the, the Saints fans have been nothing but supportive and encouraging. And I think that's really important for an organization to have a fans that actually encourage the players instead of putting them down. So I'm looking forward to actually being able to play in there, seeing how loud it is, how loud it is. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, so I know how well Saints fans travel. Um, and I'm just excited to be a part of that aspect of it. Yes, he grew up in Sewanee right outside of Atlanta, which means the Falcon-Saints rivalry you know all about. Not being a part of it yet, but knowing kind of how this rivalry has grown to be one of the biggest in the NFL, does that excite you a little bit, knowing that these two teams just flat out don't like each other? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a lot of great rivalries in the NFL that I've been a part of. I think this is definitely one of the ones that are more intense. And, and definitely historic. Um, and like I said before, I grew up uh, watching the Saints and Falcons games and going to the Dome uh, and seeing those games. And it's something that uh, the intensity is something that can be matched in a lot of stadiums across the league. Before I let you go, I want to touch on the uh, NFL replay rule that was um, brought to our attention yesterday and, of course, was passed by the owners now being able to review offensive and defensive pass interference for you being a receiver and a guy that's been mm -hmm. through that. Um, what are your thoughts on it, and how much do you think it'll be good for the NFL to have this rule change? Uh, I think it's great uh, for the NFL, and I think it's a little bit past due, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, a lot of people that watch at home, and there are so many camera angles for the people that are at home and so many opportunities for the people that are watching to get to see a play from so many different angles slow down, you know, and a lot of times when you're on the field, referees just can't catch everything. And even if they send it upstairs, they still, you know, uh, it has to be inconclusive, right? So it has to be able to be completely, uh, you know, turned around. And I think that's kind of hard. And I think it's important that they do make the rule change because, the players and the coaches that are investing the most time into this game, uh, those are who the cameras and the, and the replay need to be for. You right. know, it, guys are risking their livelihoods and, and they're risking their time away from their families and energy and a lot of things to be able to play this game. So I think the emphasis should be on that and, and the replay and the focus should be on that instead of giving it to the fans. So I think it's a huge rule. I think it's important. I, th I think it's a great time for the NFL to kind of catch up on something that's been lagging. Does this change your approach to how you, you take on your opposition as far as your route running and forcing contact on them just based on the fact that now with it being able to be challenged that this could kind of change the way maybe receivers and tight ends kind of approach um, their route running and how they – you know, try to get their hands on the football. Does that change at all or just because, or maybe it doesn't, maybe it's, I'm kind of overthinking this a little bit. Um, the, the game doesn't change for me necessarily too much because, um, 
I play pretty clean, you know. Um, I haven't really been called for a lot of OPIs. I got called for one that was it was pretty terrible last year against the Ravens. Um, and they got away with it. Yeah. They called it. And I wish I could have overturned that one. And that's the one play I think about all the time. Um, but, you know, I don't think it changes my approach towards the game. I still got to go out there, run my route, and get open. That's the name of the game is to get open. So, um, if anything, I think it, it affects the defensive players more than the offense. All right. Well, we are very excited to have you here in New Orleans, Jared. Congratulations again. I look forward to meeting you in person and seeing you on the, on the field. Awesome. I'm excited. I appreciate you having me. In some ways, I'm not quite ready for football season, but the big news like this this week has me pretty fired up. And don't you know it, the NFL draft is right around the corner. Let's turn our attention to basketball now. And the NBA season is winding down. Two weeks left, and while some things have been decided, there are still a lot of uncertain situations with regard to the postseason picture. Oh, and by the way, then there's the offseason too. And while that's seemingly down the road a bit, for the New Orleans Pelicans, it comes fast and furious here beyond April the 9th. John Barry covers the NBA for ESPN Television and ESPN Radio. The former player was able to sit down with me as we worked together in Milwaukee this week. We covered a lot of topics. And oh, by the way, a little golf too, because that's right in his wheelhouse as well. Full disclosure, as we start this interview with John Barry, I did make him go to Real Chili, my, one of my favorite spots in the whole league here in Milwaukee. Um, your thoughts on your first Real Chili experience today, JB? I'm still tasting it. What time did we go? Six hours ago? Uh, a few belches, and it's still coming back out. It was excellent. Uh, I do love chili, so I appreciate it. And you picked up the tab, of course, so that was very nice. Well, I appreciate uh, you being a good sport about the thing. Um, and I'm sure my doctor would say I could stay away from Real Chili, and that would probably be good for me too um got to see an interesting game between milwaukee and houston on a tuesday night and i know that our conversation can start with the mvp because with Giannis atetokounmpo and james harden now clearly the two front guys what are your thoughts now about where you may vote or <laughs> what you still have to decide is with, with regard to your mvp vote yeah very difficult i mean two uh, very worthy guys uh, there's no question about it some of the stuff that james harden's done this year the 32 straight games 30 points or more uh, Mike D'Antoni, I believe, told us that he has more 50-point games than under 25 games. Yes. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and clearly he had to do it with uh, the injuries to Chris Paul and Clint Capella and a lot of other guys along the way to keep this team afloat. Uh, still 20-some-odd games over 500. It's pretty remarkable. And then on the other side, a guy that um, I- I've never really seen anything like him. I uh, can't compare him really to many guys. And uh, he's sensational on both ends of the floor. Uh, and his team has the best record. So uh, there's no criteria for MVP. I wish there was. It would make it a lot easier, but there isn't. And uh, it's really going to come down to the wire to me uh, when the regular season is over uh, who I'm going to vote for because I can't go wrong. John, think about your playing days and, and, and probably the fact that most every player is always looking for some kind of advantage at this level. Is James Harden really good at taking advantage of rules and situations or is he a tricky player would you what would you what would box would you put him in yeah, no i no i think he's just just uh an incredible one-on-one player maybe the best we've ever seen and we talked to mike d'antoni and if he says he's the best he's ever seen he's seen a lot more than you and i yeah. uh, mike d'antoni's been worldwide and seen a lot of great players uh, uh he, he has probably the most dangerous weapon on offense in the nba right now the step back three-point shot uh, because you can't 
block it. You don't want to get close enough to where if he comes down, he gets to the free throw line three times. He lives at the line. He goes more than anybody in the league. So you can't foul him. Everybody says make him go right. He finds an adjustment every night. He can go right. He can go left. He can. Uh, his floaters around the rim are terrific. He's a great free throw shooter. And, uh, and again, a, a tremendous weapon of the step back. So uh, everything about him has been great. And defensively, too. Uh, he's, he's actually made a, a commitment. He leads the league in uh, deflections. He's second in the league in steals. So he's making an effort on that end, too. Uh, the guy's been tremendous. He's had a heck of a year. I think because he won last year might hurt him. I really. Why do you think? Because you know people are going to just say, "Well, he has one already." You know, Giannis. We'll just we'll go with Giannis this time because the guy already has an MVP. I think it could hurt him. Interesting. That's one storyline. What are some of the other storylines, JB? With about two weeks to go here, that intrigue you the most? And I don't care if it's West or East. You pick. But what are the ones that spark you a little bit here? Well, I would say, can the Warriors just flip the switch? Um, you know, again, they have tremendous wins. Uh, you know, in the last week or so. And then back it up with just horrific losses. Uh, and you just haven't seen that out of a Warrior team in the last five years, quite frankly. They've lost a lot of games at home. Uh, this is a team that lost, I believe, two games at home two straight years. They lost four home games in two straight years. They've lost 11 home games this year. Uh, have not been nearly as dominant. Uh, where does DeMarcus Cousins fit into this mix? Has he played enough to, to get, incorporate himself? Now Bogut comes back. Are they better without Bo- with Bogut or without Bogut? Uh, so a lot of questions with Golden State if they can flip the switch. And then I think Boston is the most intriguing team to me in the East. Uh, really inexplicable that they are where they are. They could very well finish fifth behind Indiana, which kudos to Indiana, lose Victor Oladipo and still be able to play the quality of basketball that they've played. Uh, but Boston, the enigma to me, because I think just on paper, just experience-wise out of all these teams in the East, that's the team. And we all thought it going in to the season. We thought this was a 60-plus win team. We thought it was clearly the team to beat in the East. And I think if they get emotionally and mentally together, that they still could be that team, even if they are the 4 or 5 seed. Do you believe they have time to do it, Boston, that is, to put it together? Well, time is running out. I, I thought after they beat the Warriors in Golden State a few weeks ago that they were going to really – it was going to inspire them to start playing the right way. But uh, there's clearly some sort of issue in that locker room. And to not get it done by now, 70-some-odd games in, time's out. <laughs> I don't know that you just flipped the switch for them. For a team like Milwaukee, who hasn't won a playoff series in 17 years, John, can they come out of the tournament? Can they emerge and win the East – based on so little experience? Well, when you have the best player, arguably, uh, you have a tendency to win. And he's the best player to me in the Eastern Conference, for sure. We can we can say that now. Harden's yes. over in the West. So you were talking basically Antetokounmpo, Embiid, Kawhi Leonard. And now they're all on three teams that are going to be vying for uh, representing the East in the, in the NBA Finals. Uh, but he's the best to me. And he's a guy that can absolutely take over a game on both ends of the floor. I don't know. Uh, I, I think Embiid can do that at times. Kawhi is capable as well, but no one's done it better than Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if they get Malcolm Brogdon back in that second round, uh, I think Milwaukee's as dangerous as anybody. Yeah. Is there a wild card in this? John, when you look at the potential, I guess we could call it the, the potential 16 teams, it seems like it's becoming more and more clear. Is there a wild card anywhere on either side? I don't think so. Um, I, I just think Houston's the biggest threat in the West uh, to the Golden State Warriors. And, again, I, I think it's a real crapshoot for those top four teams. Uh, Indiana might be top four, so we'll put Indiana and we'll say top five teams in the East. I honestly believe that any of those teams can come out 
So nothing would surprise me there. But I don't think anybody six, seven, eight is going to win a series in the East. And I don't believe in Denver at the two just yet. They haven't been around enough. Very good ball club. Uh, but it's about the Warriors and the Rockets uh, in the Western Conference. I'm very much ready to enjoy the postseason. The end of the regular season, let's go into the postseason. But, J.B., you said something when we had dinner last night that got me thinking a little bit, and obviously it pertains to the New Orleans Pelicans. You said we all might be just waiting for actually the firepower or the excitement of July 1 on, the off season that's coming. Explain, if you don't mind, why you think it's going to be even more explosive this year or has more intrigue than maybe the last couple. Well, last year was about LeBron James and what decision he was going to make July 1st. And now, you know, we have a Kevin Durant situation, we have a Kyrie Irving situation, and then the Antonio Davis situation. Kawhi Leonard, throw him in there as well. So you're talking about, you know, four of the top dozen players in the NBA uh, that we have major question marks with. And where are the dominoes going to fall? I mean, what are teams going to be waiting for till this guy makes a decision, then we can go? Uh, is and Anthony Davis is going to be the first guy to go. Are they going to even make a move? I mean, he's under contract for a full year next year. So we're, there's no guarantee of what happens with the Pelicans. Are they going to be presented a deal that's better than what they already had from the L.A. Lakers? Will he even deal with the L.A. Lakers again? Is it going to be Boston that jumps in? So there's so much to be done. Uh, but it's funny how the NBA has become kind of reality television, reality life that we're waiting for July 1 to watch the tracker of who's going where, who's talking to who. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the world we live in, right? It's the reality world. And July 1, it's all going to start. But I'm looking forward to sometime in mid-June to see who's going to be raising that Larry O'Brien trophy. Yeah, me too. Um, if, if you were sitting here at a table, and you are in a sense because they're, they're listening, with Pelicans fans, how would you instruct them or what could you advise them about watching this all unfold this offseason? Are there, are there certain things that they should watch? Are there certain things that they should just completely ignore in this process? Yeah, I, uh, it's so difficult. They, they've been put in such a bad position, and, and I feel terrible for them. I, I really felt like this year it was going to be a, a near 50-win team. Had they been healthy from the jump with what they had, uh, the way Julius Randles has come on. Uh, I love uh, Holiday. He's been great. Uh, and, of course, Anthony Davis and his health. I, I thought they had those three pieces. That, that's a pretty b- good big three that no one ever talks about. Very good big three. Um, so, it, you know, I, it's just a really, really difficult situation. I mean, already turning down, we don't really know the true offer from the L.A. Lakers. I mean, was it their whole team? Was it a couple of them? Was it a draft pick? Wh- which way do you want to go? Which way? Who's going to be the GM first? All right, we have that question to answer. But do they want to build through a draft? Do they want to go get known commodities of free agents that are free agents or guys that they can trade for that we know what they're going to give you? Um, I'm a guy that believes in that. I'm not a guy that would like to go through the drought. I want a known commodity. I want a a guy that's played in the NBA, and I know what kind of player he is. I know what kind of a person he is. I know what kind of professional he is. I need to know of those things. And if I'm New Orleans, I want to be relevant as quick as I can, and I'm not doing it through the draft because I don't think this year's draft is very good. So I'll go after – Get rid of Anthony Davis. Give me the best players I can possibly get for right now to help me next year. That's great stuff. Oh, one more thing, because you're a golf guy, like a really, really into a golf guy. Care to share a little Masters preview with me? Thoughts on what's going to happen at Augusta this year? Well, you know, Rory, is, he finally knocked down that door at, at uh, the players. Uh, he blew it a couple of weeks prior to that a couple of times on Sunday. Uh, I think the monkey's off his back. I think it's his year to do it at Augusta. So I'm right. going Rory. One Rory. Sound advice, John Barry. All right, so that'll do it for a very busy Wednesday here on the Black and Blue Report podcast. Our thanks to Daniel Salerson, 
John DeShazer, Jared Cook, and John Berry, too. I'm Sean Kelly. Don't forget, our next podcast is yours on Friday. Caroline Gonzalez and Ashley Amos are your hosts. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week, and I'll see you on the radio as the Pelicans are in the midst of their longest homestand with games on Thursday night and Sunday heading into next week. Until then, go Saints, go Pelicans. We'll see you the next time on the Black and Blue Report.